Good morning, and thank you for joining us on the podcast for worship for August the 9th. As you may guess, this doesn't sound like I'm at church. It's because I'm not. I'm at home recording the opening for this. We had a small mishap with the recording and are missing everything up until about partway through the scripture. So, I'm going to open us up with today's scripture and then allow it to move into the recording of the sermon. We do apologize. You can still hear the opening prayers and music by visiting us on the YouTube site. Um, However, I do realize that the quality is not quite as good on the YouTube site for the sound. Our scripture today comes from Acts 14, 8 through 18. I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard Bible. At Lystra, a man was sitting who had no strength in his feet. Lame from his mother's womb, he had never walked. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke, who, when he fixed his gaze on him, had seen that he had faith to be made well. He said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he leapt up and began to walk. When the crowds saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice, saying in the Lyconian language, The gods have become like men and have come down to us. They began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowd. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed out into the crowds, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you, that you should turn away from these vain things to a living God, who made heaven and earth and sea and all the things in them. In the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways, and yet he did not leave himself without witness, in that he did good, and gave you rain from heavens and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with saying these things, it was with difficulty they restrained the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. Blessed is the word of the Lord. Amen. So he assured me that he knew what he was doing. I mean, he had been there for a couple of months already. All the same, it was a busy morning, and... We needed two cooks on the line, so I needed to get back up there and cook breakfast for people. So before I left, I looked at him and I said, if you have any questions, there's the recipe book right in front of you in that binder. If you're still not sure, right next to that is a flip chart with all the recipes on it. And if you still aren't sure, there are two giant posters on the freezer next to you. Top one has all the measurements you need, and the bottom one has all the mixing equations. And if you still, still are not sure of something, just walk around this wall. I'm on the other side cooking. I'm happy to answer questions. 
I and the other cook checked in on him a couple times. He seemed to be doing okay, at least that's what he told us. That was until lunchtime. I needed waffle fries. We always needed waffle fries at the beginning of lunch because they always ran out the night before. I called back to him, hey, I need those prepped waffle fries. He comes in, grabs my metal third pan, takes it back, fills it up, comes back and puts it in my reach-in freezer. I do what I need to do. I reach in the said reach-in freezer to pull out the first portion of waffle fries to go into the deep fryer. You know when you work with a piece of equipment or a food item or even like a form, you can look at it and know instantly or feel it and know instantly or, you know, you just know something's off. It's not quite right. I know, especially with my car, it run, running a little differently. It jumps out at you. I knew it when I picked up that bag of waffle fries. I know what an eight ounce bag feels like and that was a lot heavier. It was almost 10 ounces. It's weird when you get to that point where you can tell the difference between two ounces, but I was at that point. I'd been working there long enough. As soon as the next cook came in, I handed off my area and knew that we weren't so busy that he needed me, I went back and checked. Sure enough, the waffle fries weren't actually weighed when they were put in the bags. He just eyeballed it. He didn't count the mozzarella sticks or the onion rings. The barbecue sauce in the back that we prep every single day was not the right recipe. It tasted really off. Also the coleslaw mix and the fajita mix. And then to top it all off, he had correctly torn up the lettuce into the right sizes for the burgers. He had also washed them, but he had decided instead of putting them in the salad spinner to dry them, he would just put them sopping wet into the plastic container in the fridge. That's a great way to give someone a foodborne illness. We stayed late to fix the problems. He wasn't a brand new employee. He had been there for several months. I had trained him in the kitchen. It was his first time on prep. And prep is a different monster than cooking online. But he, all, he knew what everything should look like. He knew what everything should taste and feel like and smell like. He had seen our prep cook, Harpreet, do him hundreds of times it felt like. But that was the problem. He knew what everything was supposed to look like. And so he decided, because he knew, he decided he didn't need to check. So that's why we stayed late. I'm sure you've all encountered somebody at some point in your lives who knew how to do something, despite actually not knowing how to do something. I'm sure you have been that person. We all have been that person who rushed off thinking we knew better than everyone else, only to discover later that no, we didn't. There's actually a name for it. It's called the Dunning-Kruger effect. The idea is simply this. Well, okay, I'll start that part. Dunning and Kruger came across this idea and decided to study it. So they brought a whole bunch of college students in from different majors and gave them a test. Some of those students would have known how to answer the test because it was in their majors. 
or they had been there long enough, this was information they should have known. And then after they took the test, they asked them to rate, how do you think you did, and how do you think you did compared to everyone else in the room? Then they plotted this out on a line graph. Now, if we plot out, we're going to go with this axis. This is your confidence level. I'm not confident that I did well. I'm really confident I did better than everyone else. And this is how well you actually scored from very poor to great score. Now, if we were rational, logical beings, theory would go that it would start down with low confidence and low score and just go straight up to high confidence, high score. That's not what actually happened. Exactly. It did start low confidence, low score, and it did end with a high confidence, high score. But just after you got off the low score, the lowest of scores, and to the still pretty bad, so still failing scores, you had a drastic level of confidence. People who scored really poorly but thought they did great. That's the Dunning-Kruger effect. People having a little bit of knowledge on a subject, thinking they know it all. It seems that the only thing more dangerous than a little knowledge, than no knowledge, is just a little bit. It gets our feeling of pride and confidence a little too high. Now, confidence and pride are not bad things. We all need them. You need confidence and pride to go out and be who you are every single day. You need it to go out and speak up when you need it, and you need to have it to go out there and use the God-given talents you have and those things that you have worked so hard to build up. Aristotle recognized this. He created what we now call virtue or virtue ethics. In it, he, he stated that a lot of things aren't necessarily bad or good, but having it in excess or having not enough is the problem. So confidence and pride, they're a good thing. Too much, you get empty vanity, arrogance, boastfulness. Too little, undue humility, understatement. The Bible has a very definite opinion as to which one is the worst, though. Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. You all know this is the modern day saying also, pride comes before the fall. Isaiah wrote concerning Babylon in an oracle. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. Hannah, the mother of Samuel, before she gives birth, is praying fervently to God, and includes that the arrogant are laid low. At the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us, be meek. And in this use of meek, it means be who you are, who God created you to be. Don't be someone who is much, don't believe yourself greater than being who you are, and don't believe yourself being less than who you are. Just be who you are. This is further supported in Luke, and he tells the story of an arrogant Pharisee and a penitent uh, tax collector. Paul goes as far as calling selfish ambition a problem of the flesh, rating it along with the worst things that humanity has. And he warns Titus to keep arrogant people out of positions of power. The Bible is very, 
very concerned that people do not become full of themselves. To think of themselves as greater than others or equals with God. Comparably, there's really little on the other end of that, of having too, less, too little confidence. It doesn't seem to be a problem. I mean, we have Moses. Comes back to Moses all the time, I know. Moses, who has no confidence at the beginning of his ministry, but he gets Aaron. And then we have Gideon, who has no confidence that God is telling him to do the right thing. And so he hides from his enemies and his neighbors. He lets his dad stand between him and an angry crowd. And he's constantly testing God, making sure that he's doing the right thing. There might be a few other stories, but to be honest, none of them jump out that strongly. God doesn't punish people for having too little confidence, it seems, but rather raises them up. We often find this sentiment in prayers and in the Psalms. God, give me confidence. Give me strength. I found one exception, and it's in Judges, the story of Barak and Deborah. Now, Barak was the head of the military for a city, for a tribe even. And he is called by Deborah to come visit him. Now, Deborah is the judge. She's the one female judge that appears in the book. And she goes, you need to go defeat Sisera, the Canaanite general, because he's ravaging our lands. Brock says, sure, I'll go do that. You're coming with me, Deborah. Now, I'm reading into this. We don't actually know why he requires Deborah to come with him. We don't know if it's because he doesn't have confidence in himself or confidence in Deborah or confidence in God. But there is a victory. The Israelites take down the Canaanites and the glory of the victory goes to two women, Deborah and Jael. She's a non-Israelite woman who actually captures and kills Sisera. Barak's punishment for not having enough confidence is that these two women will be remembered as the victors, not him. And then we come to Jesus. Now, if there's anyone in the Bible who gets to be arrogant, I think it's Jesus. Let's face it, is there anyone higher than Jesus? No, I mean, he's God incarnate. There is literally no one higher, except if you want to parse out the whole Trinity thing. Jesus is pretty much the top. And we're reminded this over and over again. Jesus is the Son of God. Who am I? You are the Son of Man. You are the Son of God. You are God incarnate. And Jesus always replies in pretty much one of two ways. Yes, and yes, but don't tell anyone. He doesn't say, yes, I am. Now sit down and worship me. He isn't arrogant. Jesus constantly puts himself below those who are following him. We celebrate that at every love feast when we kneel down like he did to wash our brothers and sisters' feet the way that a servant washes their master's feet. He just states the way things are. True, I am the son of God. But that's all. Of course, this is a little easier for Jesus. He is, after all, Jesus. It's hard to live up to that standard. But in today's story, 
We get someone else who's accredited to being a god, and they respond. Barnabas and Paul. Now, this is really early in the Paul story. He has just now really started going by the name Paul, which is supposedly his Greek name. Now, sorry. Now, Paul and Barnabas are given three choices when they are mistaken for Zeus and Hermes, two of the chief gods of Greek mythology. They could accept what they are called. Go, yeah. I'm Zeus, I'm Thermes. That's cool. That doesn't usually work out well in the Bible. For those of you who do Bible study, you might remember that we just studied a little bit before this when Herod accepted the fact that he was called God and he was eaten by worms and died. It doesn't usually work out well in the Bible to call yourself a God. Of course, they could have gone the complete other route, completely deflected. No, no, it's nothing. We just healed him. It's not big. It was just, God, we're going over here. Don't look at me. They could have done that too. But that really would have defeated the purpose, right? I mean, you don't go out in the mission field to bring others to Jesus just to deflect. They took this middle path. They acted like Jesus. They simply state the truth. Look, I don't, don't do this. Don't worship me. I am a mortal just like you. What I have been able to do isn't by my own power, but through the power of God, through the power of faith. The God who has been here since the very beginning, who has cared for all of you, even when you didn't know who God was. They're taking a middle path that bypasses the human need to self-congratulate or deflect. They're simply saying what the truth is. Now, in theory, Paul and Barnabas should be fairly immune from the Dunning-Kruger effect. Because the effect says that when you have a little bit of knowledge, then that's when you're most likely to have too much confidence. But once you start to realize how much you don't know, then your confidence level goes to where it's supposed to be in comparison to your actual knowledge. They know more than enough about theology. I mean, come on, this is Paul and Barnabas. Half of our New Testament is written by Paul himself. But we Christians are certainly no strangers to this Dunning-Kruger effect, claiming that we know more than we do, even claiming theologies calling them Christ-based, despite the fact that they're barely supported by the Bible itself. Norman Vincent Peale, that may, name, uh, name be, may be familiar to you. If not, you've probably heard of his 1952 bestseller, The Power of Positive Thinking, A Practical Guide to Mastering the Problems of Everyday Living. It was a big hit. The book espoused the idea that we can all have better lives through our own imaginations and positive attitudes. All in all, it's not a bad idea. I mean, I myself am one of those people who like to keep a positive attitude no matter what's happening around me. At least I like to think I do. It's that pontoon that keeps my boat afloat in stormy waters. But Peel takes it a little too far. He kind of ignores Aristotle's advice of not taking things to extremes. P. 
appeal went to the extreme. He went on to espouse that we can shape the path of the world simply through our faith, by ourselves, in ourselves, and God will support us through that. It takes away God's will would be done and replaces it with my will be done. It's grown into what's now known in theology circles and beyond that as prosperity gospel. That is that God will make you wealthy and healthy if you believe correctly. Conversely, which they don't talk about a lot, those people who are poor or ill therefore must have lacking faith. When I was working in hospice, and I'm not using real names in here, I met a man named Bill. And Bill's wife, Alice, had a debilitating disease. Now, Bill loved this one particular charity gospel televangelist. It was hard to sit with them because we weren't even allowed to say we were from hospice. He knew it, and we knew that he knew that we were from hospice, but he, we weren't allowed to say it because hospice is the program that you go into when you are beginning the end of your life. He didn't want to accept that because he believed very strongly in this one televangelist that because he believed that his wife would get better, that she would. He had donated literally tens of thousands of dollars. He bought all the books. He prayed constantly. And you end up on this really kind of hard line where, yes, you need to pray for God. You need God in those times. Miracles happen. But then you go to the extreme, which is, if that miracle doesn't happen, it's my fault. I didn't believe hard enough. And that's where he was. He didn't believe hard enough, he thought, when she passed. Or it was his family's fault. They didn't believe hard enough. hate that story. I hate that story because I sat with that man and talked. I haven't met many people whose faiths are so deep as that man. But it couldn't stop his wife from passing. Extremes can be dangerous. Theology like this is built on displaced biblical verses like Philippians 4.19, and my God will, make, will meet all your need according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Sure, you take that as separate, and it's something you can support material wealth with. Paul wasn't talking about material wealth. He was talking about going out and preaching the gospel. But taking that verse out, going with it all the way to the end, to the extreme. Making it, for us millennials, we would call it a meme. That little piffy saying. 
It can shift us out of the reality of the gospel and into that Dunning-Kruger peak of false overconfidence. I mean, come on. If it was true, if faith was what dictated your wellness and faith is what dictated your wealth, let's face it, this church would be full of millionaires. Also, you'd all be 120. Don't put your trust in the extremes. Don't put your trust in, it's completely me, it's not me at all. Don't put your faith in overconfidence or too much humility. Put it in God. Put it in truth. We all know the truth. It's God. We are constantly learning about the divine. We are constantly growing in knowledge and in faith. The truth is we don't have it all. We don't have all the answers. That's the first trick of getting off the Dunning-Kruger effect curve to getting where you need to be, knowing that we don't have all the answers. We do have the truth, though. It's God. So, don't be afraid to get off the effect. Don't be afraid to crack open the recipe book. It's got some good recipes in it. You might need to reread some of them to take all these disparate little bits and understand how they all work together to point to the kingdom of heaven. To point like Paul and Barnabas and say, it isn't I, it's the truth, it's God. As you go out today, may you be able to point to the truth, to know who you are, 
and know that you are a child of God, beloved and loved as all others. May you be able to go out and celebrate who you are and be able to point to the truth. And I hope to see you Saturday at 7 o'clock the same. Blessings on all of you. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.